You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Hey, what's up? Before you listen, I have a quick request from you. While you're over here listening, go ahead on down, give us a rating and a review, especially if you're on Apple Music. Let us know how much you appreciate what we bring, the conversation, the dialogue. Tell us how it supports you. Give us that good five star. We appreciate you. Welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it is amazing to see you here where you're challenged to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here along with my co-host India Jackson to get the dialogue going. So before I get started, um, I want to give a bit of a warning. If you are going to listen in today, we will be talking about some very some shitty things. I'm not going to call them sensitive. No, there, there's some, some very challenging things, but they need to be talked about. Uh, we are going to have some discussions today about human trafficking and that will include sex trafficking of children. And so if this is something that would be traumatizing or difficult for you to listen to, please do not do so. I am giving you the opportunity now with a slight pause to go ahead and stop the playback. So for those that are here, I appreciate the space that you have right now to be able to take in this conversation. It's not an easy conversation, but we felt like it was very necessary. Uh, Back in 2012, early 2012, President Obama declared January National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And so being in January, we felt like having this conversation needed to happen. And I believe this podcast is probably going to go live afterwards. However, January 11th is Human Trafficking Awareness Day. So even if you are not aware this year, you are aware going forward. And so we wanted to have a conversation about this because of the fact that intersectionality matters. And it's very often that some of the people that belong to these underserved communities and demographics often are prime targets and people that end up being victims of crimes such as sex trafficking. And so today, India and I are having a conversation with Brittany Dunn about this so that we can hear more about some of the stats, number one, because I do think that this is something that's very important to have numbers around. 
But I also think it's important to go in and talk about what some of the misconceptions are around human uh, trafficking, uh, what it is and what it isn't, and some of the signs to pay attention to. And so we have the honor of having our conversation today with Brittany Dunn, who she has the honor of helping to lead Safe House Project as the Chief Operations Officer. Prior to Safe House Project, Brittany Dunn spent 10 years in international business development at careerbuilder.com, working around the world. Brittany Dunn has a BA in economics and English from Wellesley College. She has her MBA and graduated top of her class from Thunderbird School of Global Management. She is a military spouse, mother of two, continual learner, world traveler, and protector of the vulnerable. We talk a lot about race. We talk a lot about anti-racism. We talk about bias. We talk about preconceived notions. And so it's very often that human sex trafficking and human trafficking there's a lot of preconceived notions about it. There's a lot of guesses about what it is and what it isn't and going in and really talking about these assumptions and making it so that it's a little bit easier for you to possibly spot it and also to be aware of it if you possibly are in a position of being vulnerable, of, of being a victim of this. Um, and I think that the way that Brittany does this really does talk about it from a survivor's lens, which I think is so important because very often everything is just about you being the victim and you're never given the opportunity to step out of that. So coming at it from a survivor's lens in the stories and narratives that she focuses on through Safe, Safe House Project is, is so important. And so this is a conversation that, again, is not easy to have. However, it is very necessary. And you know, we're not going to shy away just because it's challenging. But Brittany, Indy and I did have a really great conversation. And keep listening. Brittany, thank you so much for for coming out today and, and talking with us. And just being able to kind of, you know, educate the listeners on what human trafficking is and what it isn't. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. It's my pleasure. So uh, back in early 2012, President Obama uh, declared January National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. Uh, this might actually air after this point. However, January 11th is actually Human Trafficking Awareness Day. And so I felt like it was important to kind of talk about what this is and what it isn't, because I think that there's a lot of kind of preconceived notions of what human trafficking is, um, what it looks like, how to, you know, kind of spot it or, or what to do. And I think that maybe there's um, some things that you can point out that are fact versus fiction, but also some kind of things to debunk as to what it looks like to see it, you know, see something, say something, but also, also addressing the survivor mentality versus the victim mentality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is probably one of my favorite topics because there are so many uh, myths out there about what human trafficking is and isn't. And honestly, they do a disservice to the industry because when we don't truly understand what sex trafficking is and what it looks like, it really prohibits all of us from being aware of how we can identify these individuals in our community and respond to the need. And so 
um, you know, when we started as Safe House Project, it was the beginning of 2018. And at that time, Health and Human Services was estimating that 300,000 American children are victims of trafficking every year. I say that it was 2018 because, and it was an estimate because this is a legal industry. And that's honestly what makes it so challenging is we don't know the exact numbers. But what we do see are other um, indicators like calls to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, calls to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, law enforcement statistics. And that's kind of how a lot of that is extrapolated out. So for us personally, we like to say that we believe that hundreds of thousands of American children are being trafficked every year in the United States, but that survivor identification is at 1%. And I think that that 1% is at that percentage, one, because this is hard and survivors don't always self-identify or rarely self-identify, but two, because we don't know what we're talking about. And so at its simplest, sex trafficking is the commercial sexual exploitation of an individual through force, fraud, or coercion. But the important distinction to make is that if a child is being used for commercial sex, so that's prostitution or pornography, then it is considered sex trafficking whether or not you can prove force, fraud, or coercion. And so really, child sex trafficking is when a child is used anytime for commercial sex. So I'm, I'm glad that you kind of mentioned that because I think that there is a lot of, I hate to call it gray area because as far as I'm concerned, there's, there is no gray area, but I think gray area in how it's maybe talked about or how it's explained or how it's prosecuted, those types of pieces. And so I think being able to clarify for people what it actually means um, is a, is a huge part of it. And I think knowing that that's there, um, one of the things that I think is important to address, and I want to hear India's take on this as well, is that very often I think um, when people think about sex trafficking, it's very much thought about just someone that they are taken and they're never seen again, which is absolutely a part of it. But I think there's also this kind of like, it's right in front of your face and Mm -hmm. you don't realize what's happening here. Absolutely. I mean, Hollywood has done a disservice to the human trafficking industry for the most part. Um, In some ways, it's been a benefit because it's raised awareness to some level. But if everybody is looking for Liam Neeson to show up and it to look like Taken and that we're going to, you know, gallivant off to Europe, then we're Mm -hmm. we're completely off. Um, What we find with the children that our Safe House partners serve throughout the United States and the um, survivors who are referred through us is that 40% of children in America are trafficked by a family member. So there is no movement of that child. It is merely a family member selling that child for sex for one, you know, purpose or another um, that can be, you know, really to meet basic family needs. And they tell the child, you know, you're helping support the family. We have to do this or selling the child to a landlord um, to meet instead of rent. I mean, it can present in a lot of ways. It can be completely driven by that family's participation in organized crime. It can also be that there is just a tendency of that individual towards 
um, pedophilia, and then it extends out um, that they capitalize on it. And so child traffic or familial trafficking is very real and very present in the United States. Then you see approximately 26% of the other survivors that we um, see in the United States are going to be still trafficked by a trust relationship. So that might be a boyfriending scenario. It could be a neighbor. It could be a nanny, a coach, a pastor. And that has come through in a variety of ways. So when you're talking about abduction, you're really only looking at about 4% of the population. The rest of that 100% is usually children who fall into the runaway category and are engaging uh, or who have been trafficked once they're kind of either out on the streets or in the system. But overall, it very rarely involves a child being truly kidnapped. If we had 300,000 American children kidnapped every year and completely missing, I think we would all you know, throw our arms up and be going, what the heck is happening? And I think that's sometimes the disconnect for people is they see that type of statistic, but then they don't see a corresponding um, set of articles saying how many children are truly missing. And so they say, well, that can't really be happening here. Well, it is. You're just not looking for it in the right places. Speaking of looking for it, one of the things that stood out to me as someone who completed your on-watch training is that sometimes it looks like having um, a new boyfriend and many times there can be a bit of blackmail happening underneath that. Could you kind of like debunk some of the myths that we may associate with people who have older boyfriends? Yes, of course. So boyfriending is a very real um, way that this manifests, especially in teens and your college, maybe young adult population. Um, And usually that is um, going to, you're going to have this older boyfriend who, or girlfriend, I guess, that comes into that individual's life. And at first the relationship is going to be, you know, everything perfect. It's going to be that honeymoon period. But at some point, the switch flips. And all of a sudden, that very wonderful person who was doting on you and buying you expensive gifts and uh, making you feel like you're the queen of the castle is telling you things like either you'll see, uh, you'll move more toward the domestic violence kind of um, profile, or you're going to see that we need to do it for our future. Or if you would, if you love me, then you would just sleep with this guy, you know, my friend for this. And then Usually what it becomes is that sort of that individual is um, kind of bouncing between really positive, affirming language from that individual and then very um, negative uh, and violent tendencies. And so they don't always know which individual they're going to get when they um, go into that situation. But there is a deep bond that has been created between the trafficker and the survivor at that point. And so breaking that cycle of victimization can be really challenging. And so we often find that these survivors don't totally know how to get out. The other thing that's going to be present there is um, kind of that overarching presence of that individual in the survivor's life, speaking on their behalf, not allowing them, isolating them from relationships that they um that they had established prior to the, you know, that relationship that they're in. So that could be f- isolating them from friends, from family, from, e- you know, even 
passions that they liked. We see some individuals who used to love to, you know, be in a sport and then they stop going to practice or they stop, um, you know, going out on the weekends with the certain people. And that's always really telling that there might be reason to suspect that that um, relationship has escalated either to that unhealthy level or to the level of trafficking. So I, I think what you mentioned is a, a, a huge piece that people, again, don't always think about where I think there, it's it's easy to think about uh, a relationship that maybe isn't going so well, but being able to understand that there are some signs and signals that really take something from just being a, a bad relationship or um, gaslighting to truly something that is 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 going to turn abusive right. that a person can't find their way out of. Yes, absolutely. And I think the other thing to recognize is that in the adult space, if the individual has children from that, you know, from a different marriage or a different relationship, that those children will also be used as um, leverage. And so we see a lot of survivors who will stay in an abusive relationship because their trafficker is threatening the life of their children. And so that is really challenging because they're not going to self-identify. They're not going to ask for help because they are protecting their children at all costs. And so that we have seen across the board as one of the biggest levers that traffickers use when it is available to them is just the safety and well-being of those that a um, survivor loves. So being that, again, this is kind of going through some of those myths and things like that, what are some of the things that you could maybe um, – kind of give someone to really pay attention to that, that seem like very innocuous things, but what are some of those like, you know, top things that I guess maybe tend to be overlooked? Because I think just like anything else, you know, we talk a lot about like reconsidering your normal. And so there are these things that we just don't, we don't pay as much attention to, or we really don't key into it because we just, don't want to think it's that worst case scenario. We just think, oh, it's just fill in the blank. So especially being that this year, uh, well, back in 2020, this will again likely air in 2021, there were a lot of things that I think probably happened even more so because they weren't being reported and there wasn't as much to kind of do. And a lot of people probably felt like they had nowhere to go. So what are some of those things that can maybe be addressed that people just just overlook. Yeah, no, there are a lot of those things. I think that honestly, part of it is trusting our gut sometimes when we think that something's wrong. So I say that because a lot of the indicators in small children are going to be mental health indicators. The child is going to be depressed. They are going to dissociate. They're going to appear aloof. And so it's that feeling that that child just isn't engaging with the world normally is usually what you're going to find in the really young kids. They may have, you know, very inappropriate clothing for the time of year or for, um, or for their age, honestly. And so you're looking for things that if you kind of saying, well, if I was their parent, would I let them do that? And I say that lightly because I understand that that comes with a grain of salt because we all have the things that, you know, somebody else does that we would never do, even though that's not trafficking. 
but we have to kind of be willing to step in a little bit further to get more information when it's kids that we might have in our sphere of influence that we could go a little bit further with on the questions. Um, So if you have a child who is spending a whole bunch of time at your house during this, you know, season where kids are craving connection and you can tell that they never want to go home, that they are kind of terrified of it, or they are, you know, they present with some of the depression or suicidality, then it is worth asking a bigger question. Um, I think when we are talking about kids that are in high school, we really need to be present as parents in the in their online activity. And so we refer a lot to um, to tools like Bark, which is an, a monitoring app, um, but also just those gaming console settings really knowing who your kids are chatting with and who the predators are looking for um, in the online space. Because a lot of kids are groomed with the predator never even walking through your front door. And so the isolation can happen in ways that we don't expect. I am very, I mean, I'm always going to be concerned about a white van that approaches my child, but I'm more concerned as a parent now about what is the interactions that my child is having online uh, that make them susceptible and accessible to predators. And so I think we need to all step up our games a little bit on um, what we accept as normal behavior in the online space. I think the other part of um, this that we have to acknowledge as a culture is the normalization of porn and sexual abuse content in, you know, in different formats. And so when we are supporting content that drives the demand for um, porn, then by nature of that, individuals are going to feel compelled to create that content. And so when they are doing that, the age of the child is never asked or the individual in it. And we are seeing more and more children's content being uploaded into the online space, which means that they can't escape that. And it takes years of us trying to work with law enforcement and uh, lawyers to get that content removed, which is really damaging to a child's mental health, to their long-term well-being, and really to the recovery process. So I think we all have to kind of look at this holistically and see what areas of my life am I inadvertently and unknowingly supporting this industry by the nature of what we accept or how we talk about individuals or women or whatever that is or girls in our homes or in our communities. And I think that's an important step that can't be missed is that that this is an illegal industry. So industry means that you have supply and that means you have demand. And so in order to truly eradicate it, we have to disrupt the demand and then the supply can go away. Um, So I think that's really some of my main thoughts on where we can go. But I think it's also important to note that What we're talking about now is sex trafficking and human trafficking is a, human trafficking is a $150 billion industry. Sex trafficking is a $99 billion industry around the globe. And that the United States in 2018, according to the Trafficking in Persons um, report put out by the Department of State, is now in the top three nations in the world for human trafficking. So we have to assume a level 
a large level of responsibility on the actions that we are taking that really um, that really reinforce this in our own in our own backyard. Those numbers are absolutely chilling and it makes me think about a conversation um, that was had you know prior to this podcast about kind of the shift of where criminals are putting their efforts and seeing that supply and demand. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on that. Yes, absolutely. So really at this point, um, trafficking is the number one growth illegal industry or the illegal industry that's growing the fastest, but it is only number two by scale to drugs at this point. And so you, we expect it to actually overtake drugs in the next few years. And this is really because you can sell a dime bag once, but you can sell a person multiple times a day. So what traffickers are doing is that now they're selling individuals for commercial sex, but they're also having these women or these girls take in or these young boys take in drugs to try to sell the buyer as well. So not only are they going to capitalize on the sale of the individual, but they're also capitalizing on the sale of the drugs. And then the added layer of security for them in that is that if there was a sting operation or if there was a bust, usually law enforcement is going to see the drugs and arrest everybody based on drug charges. And more likely than not, they miss the signs of trafficking. And so that's why traffickers have been able to flourish in this specific industry is because they see this as low risk, high reward when they can try to um, cover it up by kind of combining a few industries. Sex trafficking just does not exist in a vacuum. Oh boy. I didn't even think about that part. And that's a way to kind of take themselves out of the equation. And now you have people that are being pegged as the victim and then put into the, you know, criminal justice system when they actually were legitimately the victim to begin with. Yes. And then what's really challenging is that we still have six states in the United States that don't have vacatur laws that would allow for a survivor, a confirmed survivor of trafficking to try and get their record expunged for criminal charges brought against them as a result of their trafficking situation. And so what that what happens is then you have an individual who is a survivor of human trafficking trying to seek employment or housing, or all of these other services, and they are unable to access any of that due to their criminal record, which wasn't even their fault in the first place. And so if we want to break cycles of victimization and actually put survivors on a path to long-term economic independence, that requires workplace or work placements, and it requires stable housing, none of which can be accomplished until legislators realize the key link between these industries and put pressure on their law enforcement and on their prosecutors to enforce and prosecute these crimes. And so this is a battle that is fought on so many fronts, which is why we have to, as the Uh, citizens of this country unite and put pressure on our legislators and on those in a position to do something to say, we demand an end. 
We aren't here to sit by and watch our children and vulnerable people in our communities become victims of the system. And so really, where do we let the, you know, where do we let it stop? And I think part of that is just all of us uniting behind a common voice. I would love to be done talking about political parties and just be talking about how do we truly serve people? How do we get to outcomes that drive people towards empowerment and the best versions of themselves? And for me, that starts with survivors of trafficking. Facts. Facts. So if you were to give you know, those listening action steps, something that they could go do, because the reality is, is I hope that everybody's listening really does have, you know, these numbers sink in and the outcomes that you're hearing here. Um, I, I want it to hit home because I don't want you to be inactive in this. So if you were to make any suggestions or to implore people to be in action with, you know, a step, what would that be? Yeah. I think your first step is always education. Education has the power to change history. So go to IamOnWatch.org, take the one-hour free virtual training. It's 10 modules. They're less than five minutes a piece. You literally can do it for 10 days in a row. Watch five, min- five minutes in the morning when you're getting dressed. Like it's not, it's not a huge ask. But I think that once you have that education, it is going to compel you to action. And so it is uniting around a desire to see child trafficking eradicated in the United States by 2030. But that means it's all hands on deck. We all got to, you know, put our buckle on our boots. We all have to just buckle our bootstraps, come together and demand an end. I agree. I couldn't have said that better. Indy and I so appreciated having Brittany to come and have this conversation with us and to talk about Safe House Project, which you will see the information about that in the show notes so that you can go over and learn more about the training and what the project itself does, who it supports, and how it provides that support. Um, We always appreciate the fact that people like Brittany are willing to come and have this conversation with us to bring attention to things that need attention brought to them and the fact that we can talk about this in the community too is something else that we're very proud of. Um, again, just knowing that people aren't going to shy away from it. It's something that really means a lot and it intersects with what I do. And yet I know some people are like, why are we having this conversation? And again, you know, knowing that some of the people that unfortunately, um, end up being victims of this are a part of these underserved communities. I, I, I have to talk about it and I have to bring it up. And the fact that you listened and you made it through this challenging interview, I I appreciate that very much. And if you couldn't the first time and maybe it took you some time, absolutely no judgment. Trust me, this is, it's not easy. And so as always, please know that I appreciate you being here and providing the the space to listen, the opportunities to have these conversations and dropping the veil, challenging your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. So until the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye.
Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From Implicit to Explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?